friends, welcome back. Thanks for joining us this Monday as we uh, continue through First Timothy, and we are coming near the end of the book. Today we're partway through the last chapter, chapter 6. We are in what looks to be uh, verse 6 as where we left off, so we will get back into that now and then uh, have conversation. So let me start reading here, verse 6, chapter 6. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with these. So, Michael, a great theme, uh, contentment. Uh, It's interesting that Paul says there's great gain in godliness, which has kind of been the theme, pursuing godliness. He'd been talking even a chapter ago, we went into this idea of training, but now he drops this idea of contentment. A great gain in godliness combined with contentment. And and then there's, you know, this is, a, I think, a well-known verse. We brought nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. And the idea here really, I think, is is to ask Christians to evaluate what genuinely do we need? How much do we need? And what does it mean to be content? Um, I don't. I don't want to, you know, beat up our culture, but our culture doesn't thrive on contentment. We we don't do contentment in a consumerist kind of materialistic society. Contentment is never going to be one of the the strong markers of that kind of society. And I think that's certainly true for us. We, you know, you, you just aren't going to have a people subjected to hours and hours of advertising throughout their day and and then say, what a content group of people. We spend a lot of our time thinking about what's next, either in our jobs or our possessions or whatever it is. So um, this is, I think, a challenge. I think contentment is a challenging word for American Christians. Yeah, it is. And I think the maybe the temptation would be to import that on the text because of our sort of consumer economy. I, I think what makes really jumps out to me here, Clint, is what comes before it. So this is going back to our previous study. Uh, I won't stay there very long, but notice this. Um, this teaching that Paul is criticizing of these false teaching teachers is conceited, has a morbid craving for controversy, disputes about words, envy, dissension, slander, all of these kinds of things. The point I want to make in sharing that with you as we now turn to this idea of contentment is that Contentment, being grateful for what we have and who we are and the community that we're surrounded with, that is almost always antithetical to these other things, to dissensions and, uh, you know, gossip and uh, looking for controversies. You know, those things generally find a seedbed inside our discontentment, those negative things that show themselves in our life, whatever we might call them, often come out of a place of personal um, discontent. And so the point I just wanted to make uh, here is that this does have an arc to it. The way that Paul is instructing Timothy to live is in a life in which he can look to God and be happy with the the things and provisions that God has given him for the ministry that he has. He doesn't have to reach. He doesn't have to try to grab or to uh, take from another. He doesn't have to create 
these sort of artificial dissensions that he was just denouncing. No, he can appreciate the community for what it is. And that, for me, Clint, really brings to mind the the study that we did together of Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think he wrote eloquently about the times where Christians are tempted to look for a Christian community that is perfect or that doesn't exist instead of being grateful for the Christian community that's actually there, warts and all. And I hear, and maybe I'm importing that a little bit here, but I hear those words in these words, the idea that if we are content with the community, with the gifts that we've been given, then we will have no time or need for these other things that we fill our hearts with. Yeah, I think it goes back in many ways to that kind of common struggle between needs and wants. You know, Paul says here, if we have food and clothing, if our needs are met, we can be content. We we can be satisfied. And, you know, that's a, again, I think that's a challenge. Most of us um, would aspire to have and do more than that. And, you know, contentment, I think, is a, is a struggle for the Christian life, not so much in do you have more than you need? But but contentment is an inner reality more than it's an outer reality. So there, there are people who don't have a lot that are very discontent. And, you know, the, the, the struggle, I think, is when we believe things will address our souls, we are going to constantly create that treadmill of trying to get more and do more, and it's never going to work. So I, I like here that... Paul combines, that's literally the word, godliness and contentment, an inner reality and an outer reality that that work together to bring us a sense of settleness. And he contrasts that as we move forward here, he contrasts that with those who are striving, those who are on the treadmill, always trying to get more. And uh, I, I don't think this is new to anybody, the scriptures have a suspicious view of wealth uh, because the scriptures, Jesus and Paul, are aware of the kind of temptation it can bring and the way in which it can distract and mislead people. But ha- having said that, um, you know, we hear that theme here again. So let me finish this chapter, or I'm sorry, this passage. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, you want to be careful jumping into this because we're always tempted to let ourselves off the hook. We should, as those in the first world, as those who have houses and cars and lots of possessions, those who have relative security, you know, we're not rich by the standards we use, but if we think of ourselves in context of the global population, we are way, way, way ahead of most. We are very close to the top and we are very, very, very far from the bottom. So having said that, I I also think we should point out that this doesn't say money in itself is evil. It doesn't say that having money is evil. It says that when we make it first, when we make it a priority and we pursue that above other things, we plunge 
to ruin and destruction. And there's this beautiful line here at the end of this passage. In, in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and given themselves, pierced themselves with many pains. You know, I, I suspect most of us probably know somebody who we would say that could or could have applied to at one point. In their eagerness to be rich, they wandered away from the faith. They made the acquisition of money and stuff more important than the faith. And I don't think we'd have to look around very far. We've probably all done that in our own lives. We probably can point to someone who's struggled in that direction. And so I think there's a balance here, Michael. I, I think we don't want to overdo it and say that the scriptures are calling us all to vows of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly not in this passage, nor do we want to say this passage doesn't apply to us because we're not quote-unquote rich. And and I think, you know, this is where it takes a little discipline to let ourselves sit under the teaching of a passage like this and actually feel like, yes, it does have something to say for us. I I find that last phrasing really helpful, uh, the idea of sitting under the teaching the, this text is interesting to me personally because I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard it preached. Some of that was the hmm. family of the faith that I grew up in. And what I find so interesting about it is it causes trouble, and it causes trouble for lots of different people in lots of different ways. But you know the folks who I heard preach and teach this most often were the people who had to deal with the fact that uh, the scriptures call us to uh, financial awareness. They, they call us to financial, let me even say humility. Often the, the people I heard teach this the most were the most interested in talking about money and giving money and growing in money. And for them, I think this, this passage was a problem to be solved uh, to some extent because, you know, what do you do with this in the Bible? If one of your core kind of ideas is that is that God's generally interested in you prospering and in you doing well, I actually think that's missing the mark completely. This is not about whether or not God wants you to succeed in whatever vocational job you've been given. I don't think that God in some way can be seen on smiling in the person who is an executive of a company over a person who's worked with their hands their entire life. Neither of these are particularly helpful images of what God desires because God loves each and has a plan for each. I think what is interesting about this is our human temptation to dismiss it and to say, well, if you only knew uh, my friend has this or maybe one step up the chain, I know people in my community have this or one step beyond that, you say, well, I've heard these celebrities have this, or I've heard that the elite have this. And compared to that, we're always going to give ourselves grace. We're always going to extend to ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But here's the thing. Fundamentally, I think that when we look at Christian community, it does call us to question some of the assumptions that we make. So this is my way of getting back to the place where you ended, Clint, so it's maybe a long discursus, but it's just this to say that we need to be very careful if we dismiss this. If we try to just push it to the side and say, yeah, I, clearly I'm not rich, then I suspect it's the value underneath the text that we're missing, that it, it's not money itself, it is the love of, and the love of money 
is one sneaky weed. It grows in lots of different ways in our hearts. I certainly would say tune into the conversation we had about the seven deadly sins. But here, Clint, I just think we've got to take a moment and try to humbly confess that uh, it is easy to try to read ourselves out of a text like this. Yeah, so it, it, that's interesting, Michael. I've, I don't think I've heard this preached very often. It certainly wasn't a, a big passage mm-hmm. of you know my childhood experiences or whenever I, we started going to church, which is a little later than that. But what I, I have heard it referenced, and the interesting thing is I feel like most of the time I've heard it referenced, somebody was pointing out that this doesn't say money is evil. It says that the love of money is the root of evil, that money is not the root, loving the money is. However, when people are making that distinction... Yeah, that distinction's key, (laughs) yes. I think when you're trying to skin this text that way, it it is telling that maybe you should be listening to some in in other words when you're trying to build a loophole out of it there's a good chance it is speaking to you in a way that you don't want to listen to uh, having said that i think we want to also keep it in conversation with the front part of the verse where did we start we started with godliness and contentment and what does paul tell us that in pursuing wealth we risk both of those things that some people are led to temptation, there is a root connected to evil, and you can wander away from the faith. And certainly, the idea of pursuing wealth goes against the very grain of contentment, that, that those two things are mutually exclusive. If, if one's waking moments are filled with, how am I going to get more, contentment is not on the menu, not on the table. It, it is not a part of that experience. And so I, I think very helpful pairing here of themes. Um, we, we, you know, we read between the lines a little bit. It's likely that this community in, in Ephesus probably had some folks who were doing well. Um, Paul maybe thinks they're putting too much into that. Maybe the community is chasing after them. Quite possibly some of these leaders are pursuing wealth and maybe doing well. And they're gaining some attention by their own wealth, by their own status as those who are quote-unquote rich. Um, we don't know any of that. Again, we've done that kind of guessing throughout this letter because Paul doesn't specifically say it. But the fact that he brings it up pretty pointedly um, leads us to think there might be some of this happening within that church community and and part of what Timothy's dealing with. A quick word for anyone uh, you know, who uh, has the the task at some point of trying to raise a child. I, I think that one of the lessons of this text is actually quite applicable. Um, verse 9, how we're trapped by the senseless and harmful desires. Uh, it's interesting because one of the temptations of childhood is to think that everything immediately in front of you is the most desirable thing in the world. I cannot tell you the number of trinkets that my daughters have bought over the years. And the cycle is ridiculously consistent. You you need the thing, you beg for the thing, you work for the thing, you get the thing, and then 
you play with the thing, you enjoy the thing, and seven days later, process repeats with a new thing. I, I think that is maybe a, a hyper uh, clear version of this, Clint. But if we're really honest, that happens for us regardless of how old we are. The things that grab our attention, the 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 holes that we try to fill in our life. And I'm not always even talking about stuff. Sometimes that's an experience. Sometimes that's a relationship. Sometimes uh, that's simply a, a wandering, a, an unwillingness to slow down or to put down roots and to engage uh, with ourselves. You know, there's a lot of ways, Clint, that I think we we find ourselves entertaining these kinds of senseless things, these senseless desires. And the only way that I know of to really diagnose that is to be in the constant, consistent work of being in scripture, being surrounded by a Christian community, seeking to hear, humbling ourselves to be under the text. I mean, th- this is in some ways simple, um, but it's not easy. It's challenging. And I think that that's a helpful word for those who are trying to navigate it in our life. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in our podcast on greed, but I, I believe it was Howard Hughes was once asked as one of the richest men in America, maybe the world at the time, how much does a, a man need to be happy? And his answer was just a little more. And, you know, the danger in that for Christians, and not to go to preaching here, but it, that that's that's simply not okay for Paul. If you ask Paul, what does it take for a person to be happy? They'll say, knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ. He will say, knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ. There's not enough stuff in the world to create Christian happiness, Christian joy within us. Um, in fact, joy in Christ will ultimately reveal that those other things promise us something they can't deliver because none of them can fill that place in our soul that longs for communion with God. And so um, for for Paul, you know, again, where do we start at the end of verse 5 here? Some imagine there's godliness, that godliness is a means of gain. Right. And Paul wants to be sure that that they know that's not the case. Being godly is not about getting stuff. It is about being content, and it is about being on guard for anything else that would try to take that central place in our lives. And money is a chief candidate. Money is one of the primary suspects that will try to do that. And so um, this isn't new. Uh, The Scripture says this pretty consistently. The New Testament is full of this kind of stuff, less so the Old Testament, but the New Testament is uh, pretty unified in its voice about the power of money to distract us or to tempt us. And and Paul kind of just gives us another uh, another dose of that here. I'm just going to sort of maybe make a bridge that we'll walk over tomorrow as we enter into the text. Just note, as we talk about what may seem like a very specific topic today, talking about contentment, we've certainly mm-hmm. talked about money in this time. I want to make clear, join us tomorrow, join us for the next study, because as we enter into it, you're going to see very quickly that Paul has in mind a much broader understanding of contentment than I think where we get hung up on. If we make this all about money, we're going to miss that Paul's talking about godliness. He's talking about righteousness, and we're going we're gonna to jump into that tomorrow. So it's a little bit of a just, you know, may, maybe put a bookmark in this because it's this is bigger than what we might even see or hear at the start, 
and tune in to sort of hear how that gets fleshed out. Yeah, and I would I would think I'd only add, Michael, that you know sometimes in the American church, in church history, we've been hard. Our stewardship stuff has gone too far sometimes. And I, I think we hear this as scolding, and, and I think Paul means it as a warning, because wealth promises something that it can't deliver. And so I, I don't think Paul's intention here is to kind of beat us up and make us right. feel guilty that we have a house and a and you know income i think it's more to warn us yeah. that if we put our trust in those things we will ultimately be disappointed at best and at worst pierce ourselves with many pains and so hear this as a caution i think and not a condemnation and you will be more in keeping with the spirit of the text it's a good summary thanks for being with us everybody we will see you tomorrow